0: Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Morning, guys. Uh, Thank you for joining us today, continuing through the book of Matthew as you just saw. Today we are talking about meals. And I believe that meals are magical. Not sure why, but you know, like you're having a meeting and that's just kind of like fine, but then you change it into a meal and all of a sudden it becomes something more, right? Like now you're like actually like sharing life with each other, you're like engaging like the very things that sustain you and allow you to like continue living. Not talking about like some sort of like power lunch here. You know, I kind of hate that. That's kind of like the opposite of what I'm talking of. Like, let's just consume something because we don't have time to stop working. But I mean, like an opportunity to like sit down across a table from someone. There's crumbs falling out of their mouth. You're like looking at each other while you're like actually doing the one thing that is going to sustain you through the rest of the day. So I think it's no like surprise then that what we see here is actually two meals uh, that are basically the two most celebrated meals in uh, the Bible. Maybe you could add in like the the wedding supper of the Lamb, looking forward to Revelation or something like that. Uh, but other than that, it's really these two we see today: Passover and the very first Communion. In our passage, you also see there's like Judas betraying and Peter denying, but. I don't want to, like, you know, give away any spoilers, but there's more on that to come, so I'm really not going to talk about it today, okay? So that's really, as close as you're going to get to a teaser or an advertisement here at Dwell Church, you should come back in the next few weeks if you want to find out more about what's about to happen to Jesus. I'm not going to talk about that at all today. Instead, I'm going to go way, 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 way back in time, and I'm going to talk about Passover, because as much as there is other stuff in this passage, the one word that is chock full of meaning, meaning, and that the whole passage is centered around is the word Passover. The single rite ends up being a tie-in from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and it gives insight and understanding to the entire story of Scripture. And it's the beginning and the end and the symmetry of God's good plan for all of humanity. And so today we have to talk first about passover we're going to start with the very first passover and today to do that we have to go all the way back to the old testament so we're going to go back to the book of exodus the people of, uh, of israel were in terrible slavery in egypt it was a racist internment and was seemingly consistently horrible from terrible work conditions to the systematic extermination of the children of israel which is how moses enters the story this is definitely one of those like uh, Sunday school kind of stories. If you grew up in the church, you've heard this 10,000 times, and you've probably made a little Moses that floats down a little river in a basket or something like that. Uh, that does not at all capture the graphic and intense and insane nature of this story, okay? People were enslaved because of their race, because they were Israelites, and a baby was put in a basket and floated down a river where crocodiles live with the hopes That Maybe God would do something with this child. It's wild. Okay. So like, that's the, that's the like, right? He's sent in a basket down the river. Uh, Hopefully it spares him the same fate as his cousins. And by God's grace, it does. He's raised by an Egyptian princess. He runs away. Once he's an adult, he finds God in a burning bush and returns to Egypt to set his people free. And this is where it gets interesting. It's funny that I even put that in there because I think it's pretty interesting so far, but it gets more interesting. All right. He comes back to Egypt. And he meets with Pharaoh. Now, uh, just to be clear, this is not the same Pharaoh that uh, Moses grew up under, you know. And if you've watched The Prince of Egypt, then maybe it's his brother and it's, you know, Ralph Fiennes or something like that. I don't really know if that's necessarily true, but who knows, you know, it could be true. But this was like a different Pharaoh, but sort of same deal. He's still enslaving his people. Uh, The Israelite people are still groaning under his uh, brutal dictatorship. So Moses says, I want you to let my people go. Pharaoh's not a big fan of this plan. He says no. And Moses says, I will demonstrate my God's power through a series of plagues. And then he sends nine plagues involving fire from the skies and the Nile turning to blood and even frogs, right? So uh, all across the board there. And they come to this last plague. And Moses tells Pharaoh, hey, this is going to be a big one. You are not going to like this. The firstborn child of everyone in Israel, or the firstborn is going to die of every child and animal in the land of Egypt. Goal, right? Like, that's, like, pretty serious. Let's stop there for just a minute because this seems, like, pretty harsh. And really, especially for people who are sort of, like, not on Team Jesus, sort of opposed to Christianity, this becomes one of those passages that they kind of, like, cite of, like, hey, maybe God is not so much of a nice guy. Right? Uh, You've probably heard arguments around this. Maybe you've even thought them yourself. You don't even have to be opposed to Christianity to have questions about the Old Testament and ask, like, how in the world can God still claim to be the moral authority here when He is doing stuff like this? This seems kind of harsh. Killing children and cattle, that is a big deal. How can God be good and righteous if He makes that happen? So here's what we're going to do we're going to go through the actual facts of the case. I here uh, am going to be the DA, and I am going to represent God and take Pharaoh to task, all right? I have no legal training or authority. Uh, You guys should know that about me, but uh, we're going to give this a shot anyway. I submit, in the case of God versus Pharaoh, Exhibit A. I was really hoping that would work. Anyway, uh, it's Exodus 1, 13 through 14. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. First, we see a couple of things here. The systematic enslavement of an entire race of people. This is ironic because the only reason that the Israelites were there was because Joseph had grown so much in power that he was Pharaoh's right-hand man. But then he dies off, another generation comes in, this Pharaoh does not know the Israelites and starts getting scared that they're going to take over all of the land, that kind of thing. So he puts them into slavery and deems these Israelites as less than human and sentenced to work for the Egyptians, and their treatment was not kind either. Now, technically, we're talking about two different pharaohs here, as you said, but it seems like this slavery practice continued from the old pharaoh to the new, and so we can make that assumption that it was basically the same sort of treatment. Exhibit B, Exodus 1, 15 through 16 says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other one Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live." And then Exodus 122 says, this is after that whole plan with the, the uh, midwives did not work out. Pharaoh says to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, again, if you've been in Sunday school, that feels like a Sunday school story. This is intentional genocide. Do you see what is happening here? He tells, tells the midwives to kill the Israelite boys in an effort to stem the growth of the Israelite population and in an effort to ensure that with less men, they would be incapable of mounting a strong resistance against the pharaohs, right? Against the leaders of Egypt. Exhibit C. Finally, we see nine, and different, uh, nine different and compelling chances for Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. God had already sent nine plagues and somehow Moses and Pharaoh had some sort of like open dialogue here which to me is the weirdest part of this whole story that he keeps coming back and he's like let my people go and Pharaoh's like no sometimes he even says yes and then like changes his mind afterwards Pharaoh's like more bad stuff's gonna happen and Pharaoh's or I'm sorry Moses is like more bad stuff's gonna happen Pharaoh's like I'm not sure we'll see right so he comes back to him he has sent nine plagues to show the power of God here God is giving Pharaoh opportunities to actually do the right thing but moses i can imagine is like looking outside as people are like developing boils on their skin and as there are like plagues of locusts and stuff and he's saying to pharaoh there's an easy way to end this let my people go and still pharaoh says no god gave him ample time to repent and change his ways but still he went on living in evil this leads us to a big point, because I, I want to just like hit this really hard and recognize that like Pharaoh was doing evil here, but when we're sitting here reading this story, we're like, geez, God, that was kind of harsh. I don't know about this, right? And it brings up this idea that I think you'll, if you think about it for a second, you'll see that it's true in your own life, that justice really only seems good to the victims, right? Like, we all think that we can also just of like sit back and pass judgment on others, Uh, But very often, like, judgment only seems, or justice only seems good to the victims. Imagine, for instance, that someone has a birthday. They go out with some friends. Somebody hears it's their birthday, so they send them over some shots or some drinks or something. They have a couple of, like, too many drinks or something like that. Then they drive home, and they get in an accident. Should that person be put to death for that? Like, come on, it was a birthday party. We are having a good time. If that person was your friend, you'd be like, man, they made a mistake. This is not good. I don't know that their punishment should be too harsh. But what if you were like the mom of a child that died because of that car accident? Does that change the math of the story at all? Then it seems like no punishment would be too great. Think about a case of like child abuse or something like that. It seems very, very harsh to remove a child from their parents, but it seems even more cruel to actually let that child continue to live with their abuser. You see how, like, the vantage point changes your feelings on justice? Now, it doesn't change what justice actually is. There is right and wrong, but it changes the way that we perceive it. Or in this case, think about a totalitarian regime where a brutal dictator is killing and oppressing his people. And sometimes an outside force must come in to enforce justice. Basically, the idea is that you don't think that people should be punished, and we don't think that people should be punished for, pe- for stepping on other people's toes until they step on yours. Then you cry out for justice. That's kind of just the nature of being a human being. Justice only seems good to the victims. God here is not bringing anything that is vindictive or evil. He is actually being just here. He is bringing justice to those who are oppressed. So, back to our story. God has threatened to kill all of the firstborn of e- Egypt, but what about the Israelites still living in Egypt? It says this in verse 7 of uh, chapter 1, that God has given them a way out of this judgment. It says, then they shall take some of the blood and they shall put it on the, I'm sorry, this is, yeah, this is chapter 12 of Exodus. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night. This is of a lamb that they killed, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning, until anything that remains, or anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, Egypt I will execute judgments, I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see that there, that God made a way out? They would sacrifice a lamb, and the blood over their doorposts would be a sign. I want you to notice something here. God is not like a crappy mailman. He didn't have trouble, like, identifying where the Israelites were and where they weren't. So it wouldn't have been a sign from God that there was blood over the door, which means that it must have been a sign for the Israelites. The blood was meant to be a sign for us. It reminds us that the cost for evil is blood. It is death. This is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. Death only enters the world because of Adam and Eve's sin. Paul tells us that the wages of sin is is death, as in, like, when you sin, you should get paid in death. Because of that, I want to make sure that we're all seeing something here, that God's justice was the tenth plague, but God's mercy was the Passover. And this is so vital because we very often have trouble reconciling those two things, right? Either we think of God as all justice and no mercy, and he feels like some sort of vindictive heavenly policeman, right? He's just up there shaking his finger at us and telling us like, hey, you guys are doing the wrong thing. Or... We think of him as all mercy, and then he has no rules and no standards. This God would not be able to stand up for the innocent or mete out justice because everyone would be getting mercy. This would be like a whose line is it anyway form of life where everything is made up and the points don't matter, right? Nobody wants either of those versions of God. So instead, he is wholly and completely both, justice and mercy. This story is a very powerful symbol of that that he wanted uh, the Israelite people to remember forever. So he told them this through Moses. He says in Exodus 12, 24 through 27, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. And when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. So, from that moment on, and for thousands of years, and even to this day, Jewish people and some Christians still observed this Passover feast. In fact, uh, Brie Warner actually hosts one every year, and if you want to join her, uh, it's coming up in a few weeks. She does it right before Easter. You can reach out to her after the gathering. She would love to have you. I'm committing everyone coming over to your house. I'm sorry about that, Brie, but it's a pretty cool thing. She's led us through it before, and it's an amazing experience. But people have been celebrating this since this very moment, okay? It's not just some sort of, like, useless festival. It's not, like, an interesting time to get together with your friends or something. It is actually an event where we are observing and remembering God's forgiveness, which brings us to our story today. Well, not really today, but also 2,000 years ago. But we're jumping thousands of years through this story, okay? So this is what Jesus and his friends, his disciples, were doing when he said this. For my reading today, I want you to imagine the scene here, all right, because the background information that is like setting the, the, the backdrop to this whole story is very important. Jesus and his disciples are sitting here celebrating that feast that I just talked about that freed their people from bondage and oppression. They might have even been sitting there with their belts on, with their staffs at hand, just like Moses called them to. They were probably eating lamb. They could have been even uh, on the closing part of the rite that involves looking forward to the future restoration of God's people. I mean, the way that they had developed the practice of Passover at this point had led the Israelites to where they had a part of the Passover meal that was actually looking forward for a one-day future down-the-road Messiah to finally show up. And that is the meal where Jesus institutes this communion. He says this crazy thing. He holds up the bread, which was a symbol of God's past mercy, and he declares it as a tool for his present mercy. It is his body, he is the new sacrifice. He would be the new innocent lamb which covers the doors of his people. He holds up the wine, the blood of his covenant, meaning like the blood of his long-standing promise. This is the promise that was made to God's people all throughout the Old Testament. The promise that he made all the way back to Abraham that God would not forsake his people this blood is an agreement between God and his people that he would always be there for them and Jesus here being that blood incarnate would spill his own blood on the cross to be the final and total fulfillment of that covenant. this is the answer to the promise that was made to so many people in the Old Testament that God would be with them and would never forget or never forsake them. this is the climax and the resolution of of that covenant. And I want you to catch here that while Jesus is instituting this uh, very first communion, he is doing it with people like Peter, who he tells a few sentences later that he's gonna deny him. In fact, all of the 12 disciples, as you read today, he says, you guys are all gonna walk away from me when the shepherd is struck. He's sharing it with his own betrayer, Judas. Somehow, from the very beginning, this symbol was meant to be taken by sinners like you and me to remind us that even us, even you and I, and even the worst of us, even people like Judas, even Peter who would soon deny him, are meant to take this as a symbol of God's forgiveness and Jesus's infinite humility to be able to sit there with people who are ready to betray him and hand out his own body and his own blood. Jesus is the new Passover. Jesus steps in and he says, I'm going to be the reason why God is going to spare you from justice. But now, instead of just the Israelites, all humanity hangs in the balance. This new Passover that we call communion is a sharing of the body of Jesus with his followers. It reminds us that we celebrate it every single week here at Dwell Church. It reminds us that Jesus had to give of his body for us. That our sin and our evil, that we had to do to one another and to ourselves, like a price had to be paid for all of that, for all of the evil and wickedness that we bring into the world. It actually costs someone's blood. It costs Jesus' blood. That's actually why we celebrate uh, communion every single week. Different church traditions do it different ways. but I just want to make sure no matter what else happens up here on a Sunday morning, sometimes it can get chaotic, sometimes things can go wrong, I might not say the wrong thing, the band might mess up on a song or something like that. No matter what happens on a Sunday morning here at Dwell, at least we have an opportunity that we want to offer to each and every one of you and to ourselves to say, Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me, remembering the sacrifice that Jesus has made for all of us. So if it's our sin and our evil that had to uh, make a price to be paid, we need to ask the question, who now is on trial? So if in the first Passover it was Pharaoh who was on trial, who is on trial now? The answer is you and me, and everyone who has ever lived, ever. And here are the facts. You have sinned, you have committed evil, you have done wrong. It doesn't really matter if it's like big wrong or little wrong, because at the end of the day, if God's going to be a just God, then he can't hang out, he can't be with wrongness, right? If God is fully just, then justice does not mix with evil at all which means that the verdict is already passed. You are guilty. And in a just world, that's the end of the story. You stand before a righteous judge with no excuse and a plea of guilty. Your only hope is to beg for mercy. And that is when Jesus steps in and says, I am the Lamb. spills his own innocent blood and he smears it on the doorpost of your house he takes his own blood and uses it as a covering for you maybe you need this forgiveness today maybe you've never actually asked God to forgive you and you walk around with this crushing weight of guilt all of the time This is what God's blood is for. This is what Jesus gave his life for. Maybe you're living a life knowing that you're separated from God. You feel that gap. Like maybe you think he's there, but it feels like there's some sort of distance between you and him. And you don't know how to cross it. That's what Jesus' blood is for. He actually crosses it for us. Maybe you just need to be reminded of this. Maybe you need to be reminded that your sin is costly. That all of the petty and silly things that we do in our lives to harm ourselves and harm others actually had to be paid for with blood. Maybe you just need to be reminded that your sins are actually forgiven. Maybe you're carrying around those sins as if they're not actually paid for. Whoever you are today, whatever it is that you are thinking, remember that this blood, this body, is for you. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.